every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. Welcome to a brand new week and the final few trading days of November. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Monday, the 27th of November. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Thank you for making this show one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong, according to the statistics. In today's business and finance headlines, the two leading presidential hopefuls of Taiwan's opposition parties on Friday separately registered as candidates for the January the 13th election after efforts to agree on a single opposition ticket collapsed. The failure to agree on a deal sets the stage for a close three-way race that is likely to determine China's stance on the island. The annual inflation rate in Japan rose to 3.3% in October from 3% in the prior month, pointing to the highest print since July. On a monthly basis, consumer prices increased 0.7%, that's the most since April 2014, after a 0.3% gain in September. And excluding energy products and fresh food, consumer prices rose 4% in October from a year ago. The core inflation print in Japan exceeded the Bank of Japan's 2% target for the 19th consecutive month. U.S. online shopping hits record highs on Thanksgiving Day and Black Friday. Shoppers spent more than $5.5 billion online on Thanksgiving Day, an all-time high, according to Adobe Analytics. And Black Friday shoppers spent a record $9.8 billion in online sales, up from 7.5% from last year. Adobe expects the spending strength to have held over the weekend and through to today's Cyber Monday. The report forecasts that online shoppers will spend a record $12 billion today on Cyber Monday. Hong Kong is to launch China Treasury Bond Futures, cementing its role as the world's leading offshore renminbi hub, HKEX's CEO Nicholas Agazan says. The futures will help regional and global investors interested in accessing China to more effectively manage their interest rate and investment risks, the bourse operator said. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong at Alex KY Wong Asset Management and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. Providing a view on mainland China will be China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street Friday, U.S. stocks rallied for the fourth straight week, the longest win streak since June, led by the Dow. The S&P 500 ticked higher by 0.1% to end at 4,559. The Dow rose 117 points, or a third of a percent to 35,390. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite fell 0.1%, closing at 14,251. For the holiday-shortened week, the Dow gained 1.3%, while the S&P 500 advanced 1%. The Nasdaq Composite added 0.9% in that time. Treasury yields ended higher on the week, largely thanks to a 5-8 to eight basis point jump on Friday. With the short end underperforming on the week, the 10-year yield rose 6 basis points Friday to 4.47%. The 2-year yield was up 5 basis points to 4.96%. The OPEC Plus Group has made progress in talks with its African producers over their oil output quotas next year, a spat which sent oil prices tumbling over fears of disagreement in the group about the next move in its oil production policy. Oil prices ended the week unchanged after four weeks down in a row, but with plenty of volatility along the way. Brent crude oil closed out Friday at $80.58 a barrel. That's 0.9% lower on the session. Gold prices jumped half a percent, back above $2,000 on Friday. Spot gold closed above $2,000 per troy ounce for the first time since May, settling at $2,002. The US dollar index ended lower for the third week out of the last four and at three-month lows. The yen was 0.1% stronger at 149.44 against the dollar. The Chinese yuan surged 0.9% over the week to 7.1488 renminbi in Shanghai. On the mainland, the Shanghai composite was down 0.7% at 3,041 and for the week it lost 0.4%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index led the declines in Asia Friday, tumbling 351 points, or 2%, to 17,559. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index dropped 2.2% after surging 6.4% in the previous session when it was buoyed by government-led financing support. 
including allowing banks to offer unsecured short-term loans to qualified developers for the first time ever. The tech index, that fell 2.2% Friday, reducing its weekly gain to 1.1%. And it looks like the Hang Seng is going to rebound a little bit at the open this morning. Futures markets projecting a jump of about 70 points. That's 0.4%. The index likely to start the day around about 17,630. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. The dying days of November are with us. We're coming up to the final month of the year. Let's see what our guests have got to say this morning. Uh, we have with us, as always, on a Monday morning, Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us is Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. Welcome back, Patrick. Thanks. Good morning, Peter. Well, let's start looking at the markets because we are coming up now to December, the final uh, the final month of the year, and also maybe have a little bit of a preview of how things are looking uh, next year. Let's start with the, the US, US markets. US stocks. They rallied for the fourth straight week, as you heard earlier there. The longest win streak since June, led by the Dow. Small caps also surged Friday back into the green uh, for the week. Um, Alex, um, we're coming up to that period now where people are talking about a Santa Claus rally. We had three pretty poor months for US stocks, but things turned around in November, a decent rally overall in November so far. Um, Has it got legs? I think uh, it's still got some legs, uh, but I think the focus probably will turn to software companies. Last week, NVIDIA uh, announced results, and I think it already met resistance, and probably people are looking to the next phase. So the AI theme probably would would be the uh, AI application now uh, instead of AI in, in infrastructure. So I think uh, probably people would shift their focus into those uh, uh, software companies led by Microsoft. So um, the market caps of those companies would be big enough to lead the index higher, but I don't think uh, we would have uh, uh, an across-the-board strength. Probably uh, we will still have a polarized and uh, polarized market performance, and also we will have a very narrow-based uh, market rally. Patrick, what are your thoughts here? This is typically, December's typically a strong month of the year, isn't it? But um, it comes off of um, a strong November as well. Yeah, look, absolutely it does. It's been a, it's been a tough year all around and I think a lot of investors are, are looking for some relief as we head into the end of the year. I'm not convinced, uh, not convinced we're going to get a lot of it. Uh, I'm cautious uh, at this stage here. I, I don't hold to the same view that uh, you know the Fed's going to be accommodating uh, investors' wishes by uh, by easing rates uh, next year. Uh, so it's a battle between what what we've got is you know some moderate growth and uh, and where policy, where Fed policy is. So I see a little bit more, perhaps a little bit more upside, but I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it broad based and. Uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to see that uh, that very strong finish at the end of the year. I think uh, investors will be cautious, and those that uh, have recovered some uh, in the last uh, in the last month or so, I think, uh, yeah, may be keen to uh, to take that off the table. Mm. Well, the rally has been really seven stocks, isn't it? Those magnificent seven. If you take them out, the S and P five hundred is flat for the year. Um, what's the outlook for the the magnificent seven? Uh, for me, I think, uh, as I've said, I think uh, people probably would focus more on the uh, software side and AI application side. So I think uh, Microsoft probably would still be the the, the strongest performer. Mm. Uh, but for others, I think uh, the momentum actually is uh, is not that strong. So uh, very likely we may see um, focus shifting to those uh, companies like Adobe. I think uh, probably this may be the next rising star among the big caps. Uh, but I don't think the other other companies like Amazon, Google, or or, or Facebook uh, have too much upside from here. And Apple, That's, uh, Apple probably high. would just uh, go sideways. I think uh, we 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 would not have too much volatility in Apple. Mm. Well, what do you make of these magnificent seven stocks, of Patrick? They, they've really held up the market, haven't they, this year? It's been quite an extraordinary narrow rally. Um, and sort of, there's some, historically, there's some warning signs, aren't there, when you see that type of narrowness in the market? Well, absolutely. That is the big, uh, that is the big cautionary flag, the, the narrowness of it. Um, you know, investors have been attracted to the, you know, the big names, and rightly so, because they have been uh, you know, dominating uh, uh, dominating markets and uh, you know dominating uh, new economy uh, new economy moves. So 
I think that's validate. I think that validates uh, you know their performance. But I, I think uh, the overriding caution that I have is is the message that it sends about the wider market. That it is because it has been narrow, uh, because growth is uh, has been okay, but uh, is now looking to you know set to slow under the influence of uh, what is tied to policy, and we're seeing a slowing in manufacturing. You know. Uh, indicators from PMI. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, sorry, again, the narrowness, uh, I think, is a cautionary, is a cautionary tone. I mean, when, when we last saw that, when we, we, the historical analogy, I suppose, is 2000 and the dot-com bust, where, you know, the, the market then got increasingly narrower and then sort of imploded upon itself. Is there a risk of something similar happening again next year? Well, I think there is. If uh, you know, if investors don't are not validated in this idea that we're going to have a you know this cult, this Goldilocks <laughs> type finish, which is you know sustaining growth and uh, you know and possibly lower rates, I don't think those things are, are possible. For me, I think uh, uh, this is a bit different because uh, uh, those manufacturers haven't has a strong earnings uh, uh, to back up their growth, so this is a bit different. Uh, so I think people will still feel comfortable to 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 stick with the big names, or or those um, second tier uh, uh, companies uh, in in the tech space uh, with uh, with with earnings space. Uh, so I think uh, we are likely to uh, see some some weakness in other parts of the market. But for the tax tax side, I think they probably will still be the leaders. What about the consumer? What sort of state is the U.S. consumer in? Because the data is showing us sort of a bit of a softening, isn't it, at the moment in consumer confidence? Uh, but the but the Thanksgiving right now is they're still doing okay. So mm. um, they are they they continue to price on the upside. Um, <laughs> I mean the labor market and and the consumer are spending. So um, it's still too early to call for that uh, retreat. But I think uh, uh, somehow we probably will see softening uh, coming because um, the rate sector has stayed high for so long. So I think eventually we will see some weakness. Patrick, this is a big part of the economy, isn't it? Any sign at all that the consumer is running out of steam yet? We've sort of been expecting it for a while, haven't we? But it hasn't happened. Well, we have been, but it hasn't yet, uh, has it? I think this is, uh, you know, has some relation to uh, the fact, yes, rates are high, and I believe we're going to stay high for, for some time. But, you know, rate setting for uh, you know, rate setting for mortgages, particularly in the US, is, you know, is very slow. People are on very long, uh, very long mortgage, uh, mortgage fixings, uh, not the same as we see uh, elsewhere. So the U.S. consumer is, uh, you know, is relatively holding up somewhat better, as we said, uh, saw decent numbers or very good numbers rather out of the, uh, you know, the Black Friday uh, sales. Uh, we saw PMI services, uh, you know, expanded uh, a little bit more than was uh, than was expected. I think the difficulty is in is in the manufacturing mm-hmm. uh, side of the economy, uh, and that relates to global growth because interest rates are you know, are high around the world. Uh, that is curbing uh, activity. So I think it's a manufacturing sector which looks to be. Uh, you know, in more difficulty or facing more headwinds, uh, the consumer still looks to have uh, you know some legs for the moment. If we compare to the rest of the world, I mean, the, the U.S. consumer is in pretty good shape, isn't it? Really, in Europe, not looking so good. Out here in China, not good either. Well, look, absolutely, and as I say, I think uh, some of that relates to the uh, you know mortgages are a very big part of uh, you know consumer uh, you know, con- uh, consumer spending, consumer. Uh, uh, consumer charges and uh, and in the US they are much slower to change than they are elsewhere, um, and uh, and we're starting to see that slow down in some places outside of the US where the consumer is starting to feel that that impact more more acutely. Yes, particularly uh, you know here in the region, uh, here in uh, Hong Kong and in China. I think we're coming to the end of earnings season now. How how is it shaped up over, overall in the in the US? Is it meeting expectations, or and what's the outlook? Uh, so far, it is uh, okay. Uh, actually, uh, it's meeting ex- expectations uh, mostly. So I think that's why the market behaves so so strongly. But uh, looking ahead, I think probably we may see some weakness in 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 other parts. I mean, uh, manufacturings and 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 also the small cap space. I think uh, that probably eventually will come. But uh, in the meantime, things are still holding up. Mm. Well, Patrick, we've got to see good earnings, haven't we, to justify these valuations because the valuations are looking pretty stretched at the moment. So it really, earnings are going to be, very, well, they're always important, but maybe even more important than normal. Yeah, look, they have held up uh, you know, relatively well and held up uh, well you know, versus uh, expectations. I think back to our original uh, or early discussion, rather, on the, the narrowness of the market. Um, you know, investors need to stay, by and large, need to stay invested. Uh, and so they have concentrated on these, you know, on the on the on the magnificent seven, uh, and so there's still some, you know, still some support there, and 
but yeah, I think that you know the change comes when we start to see you know, some of the you know the weaker or second tier uh, start to feel this uh, this impact of uh, eventually eventually slower activity under the uh, sustained influence of uh, of higher rates. Are you worried that um, maybe we're also, you know, there are some economic headwinds um, coming up, aren't we? The defaults are increasing. The default rates have gone now um, since the Fed started raising rates back in March 2022. They've gone from 1% to 5%. That starts to lead to problems, doesn't it? And companies start laying off workers. Is, is there a warning sign there going forward? Yeah, of course. I think uh, people have expected that uh, to come. Uh, so I think eventually that would come because... Uh, uh, companies need to refinance. Uh, many companies need to refinance their their their, their books. So I think uh, eventually we would see higher rates affecting them their operations, and probably we will see more lays off and affecting consumer sentiments. So eventually, I think uh, that would come. Mm. Yeah, look, look, absolutely. I think that um, we you know, it's well to remind ourselves that how raising interest rates uh, you know helps to control inflation or, or eventually controls inflation, and that's by slowing activity. Mm. You know, you don't just you don't stop inflation by raising interest rates. You 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 curb inflation or you cap inflation by slowing activity, and you slow activity by uh, by raising rates to a level uh, where bu- you know, where businesses and consumers, you know, it costs them more to do that business, and then they eventually can't can't do it. So I think think we face uh, you know some economic headwinds that we continue to face economic headwinds. I think uh, you know well deep into uh, deep into next year. Mm, I mean, as well as the, the default rates, we've got unemployment's ticking high as well we're now basically what well, it's going to be two years now that the fed's been hiking rates and and you know you've got, presumably got to believe the fed they're not going to cut them anytime soon these are some quite severe economic headwinds well, that, you know, well that's the message that uh you know fed speakers and and indeed speakers you know most of the uh, central bank speakers around the world the same message the same message that they're giving the market is that rates are going to stay high for an extended period of time the market believes that, that, that they'll be cutting rates uh, next year, uh, and that's what you know. They started to price. Uh, I believe that that's uh, too early. Well, this is what the, the this is what uh, Fed fund futures are saying at the moment. They're pricing in right now a 21% chance that the Fed will cut short-term rates in March, and a 46% chance that they're going to cut um, in May. And they're pricing in now four quarter point uh, rate cuts next year. Now, the Fed is saying nothing like that at all. No, I think that's fanciful. I, I, I don't think that's going to. I don't think that's going to happen. No, you know, the market is the, is the final arbiter, and you know, the market has. Well, the Fed is the final arbiter. Rather, you know, the market prices that at the moment. But uh, you know, I don't see that. I don't see that pricing being uh, particularly confident in the face of uh, you know continued messaging from the Fed that that's simply not what they're going to do. And yeah, I think uh, we need a very um, strong evidence from data for the Feds to cut rates. So I think uh, this is quite unlikely to see if uh, we cut soon. Yeah. Mm, but what, what do you make of the performance of the Treasury bond market this year? Because we, we looked like for quite a long time this year, we were going to run into the third year of losses uh, for Treasuries in a row, which would be a historic uh, period that that's never happened before in the whole history of the United States. But suddenly they've regained all of their losses and they're about flat now uh, for the year. A 10-year yield, which did hit uh, over 5% last month, currently at uh, about 4.5%. So basically 50 basis points come off uh, the 10-year. The but what's your thoughts about the Treasury bond market? I think looking ahead, the bonds will still um, be a little bit weakish for me. I think uh, people already questioned about the um, finance uh, capabilities of the U.S. government. So mm-hmm. I think this is a new new angle to look at treasuries. At I think uh, they, they no longer trade the rate at risk-free rate. So they think uh, there's some risk associated with, with, with treasuries. So I think uh, that's why probably the, the long end uh, would underperform. And then I think uh, we would see the, uh, the, 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 the yield to stay high. Yeah, look, absolutely. Look, to Alex's point, uh, what we've seen this year is a, a repricing of the term premium uh, in, uh, in, in U.S. Treasuries and in, uh, in bonds, uh, bond yields uh, around the world more, more generally. And I think that that's appropriate. Uh, I think that bond yields are still, uh, or bond yields are still low uh, historically. Uh, if we look at uh, real GDP growth uh, plus inflation plus a term premium, uh, then you can make a case that uh, the yield should continue to be uh, continue to be firm and indeed should be higher than where they are where they are now. Would you be tempted to lock in rates at these sort of levels? Um, look, I think if you're a you know, if you're a corporate uh, a corporate borrower, I think you need to start looking at, uh, at at yields. I think the market is 
not so much confused, but I think are uh, you know under the spell that the idea that uh, that rates are going to come lower. Um, you know the cash rates are going to come lower. I, I don't believe that that's the case either. So, uh, I think it's a, it's a long-term adjustment to what is a uh, a wholly uh, higher uh, plane of of interest rates uh, than we have experienced in the last fifteen years or so. Well, we've seen Alex though some odd some odd correlations this year, haven't we? With the, the normal correlations that we've seen, like for example, um, equity and bonds moving in opposite directions, hasn't really held this year. They've they've been quite strongly correlated for for a lot of the uh, for the lot of the year, which sort of flies in the face of experience that equity prices tend to move in the opposite direction uh, to to bond yields uh, because. Presumably, higher yields represent strong growth. But do, do you see these correlations coming back in line soon? I don't think so. I think uh, very likely we may see um, they are going in the same direction because uh, I think the weight expectation, macro background, probably would still be the same. So that's why they are moving together. Yeah, look, I would agree. I think, uh, again, to this term premium uh, uh, argument, I think that we're getting to a, uh, you know, a readjustment or a, an appropriate readjustment uh, of term uh, of term yields, and we're not at that point yet. So until we get to that uh, equilibrium, then I don't think those uh, long-term correlations, and I do expect they will return eventually, uh, are going to be in, in force yet. So in the near term, uh, I still see headwinds for both the bonds and the equity market. Mm. How, how much should we be focusing on debt? Um, that's been a big issue, isn't it? The amount of issuance uh, that the Treasury's had to do um, in, in the bond markets, and, and clearly that's going to uh, continue. Is this going to become a bigger focus, do you think, next year? Uh, I, I, this is a very difficult question because uh, this should be the fo- <laughs> bigger focus right now. So <laughs> I, I don't know when the market will turn the focus on 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 on, the, on that level. But I think I've, uh, we should be cautious because um, uh, people probably would 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 already uh, be a little bit cautious on this oversize or overall size of the debt market because uh, we are talking about a, a uh, over thirty trillions uh, debt of the U.S. government already. So mm. uh, although the number is a little bit arbitrary. But I think uh, people were still worried about the size. Yeah, look for sure. You know, when uh, I've been talking about how when uh, when policy rates are raised and and growth slows and consumer spending slows, uh, then it's incumbent on the on the public sector to spend, and they will have to spend by uh, by issuing debt. So, uh, you know, another contributor to uh, you know to this uh, this pressure uh, on bond yields uh, on bond yields to be higher than where we are now. So, yeah, I think debt will come back as as an issue, and I think. Uh, uh, that's a you know a story for for the 2024 and beyond, but uh, I see that contributing to to high yields from here. And what about emerging markets? Uh, they've had a pretty good month um, so far. The MSCI Emerging Market Index is up over seven percent uh, in November. Emerging market currencies have also done well as well, about two point three percent. Um, there are obviously some headwinds coming because of the, the Fed. Uh, we've also got elections in some of the key markets as well, like India, like Taiwan. But overall, as an asset class, what, what's your thoughts about emerging markets? I think uh, for China, probably we will still underperform, I think. Uh, people will still be looking for um, growth. Probably India will be the leader, I think. It will still be the leader, even though uh, it is... Uh, Pricey, but I think people are, are looking ahead and 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 use China as the model for India growth. So I think um, probably India will still be the pace to lead the uh, emerging markets. So I think um, it's like the U.S. market. Probably we may see some strength in certain markets, but um, weakness in other markets. So I think um, we will see polarized performance. But overall, probably people were looking. Uh, outside U.S. to look for opportunities. So um, I think uh, some markets probably will still be okay. But um, as I've said, and NVIDIA probably would, uh, would set some caps on the hardware size, so probably places like uh, Taiwan and South Korea would not have too much momentum from here. Mm. Patrick, I suppose the big risk to emerging markets is the Fed itself, isn't it? If um, if, if U.S. growth uh, doesn't slow in the way in which they're anticipating and they start raising rates again, that could knock the whole thing on its head. Yeah, look, absolutely it could. And I, I think that that's a risk which is uh, which is underpriced uh, at the moment. I think if we look at emerging markets in general, they're, you know, they're fairly rich uh, at the moment. Uh, if we look at the lead from... Uh, from China, as uh, as Alex mentioned, uh, I see headwinds there. Uh, you know, we're talking about debt uh, earlier. You know, we're trying to deal with the property sector there, but dealing with it really with you know papering over the cracks and really exposing the, the degree of debt there. So, you know, as a lead to the other emerging markets, uh, you know, China is, uh, is is still a negative influence. 
Alex, should we be focusing on some of the political issues, some key elections coming up, aren't there, next year, starting with Taiwan um, in, in January? How much uh, should investors be looking at that and focusing on that? I think uh, the, the the focus may not be too too strong because um, Taiwan probably would, would still more or less the, the same. I think there's some continuity probably expected, so surprises is not that quite likely. As I've said, uh, Taiwan probably is a manufacturing-based uh, economy so or market, I think. So we probably uh, would still be affected by the uh, expectations of the AI developments on the hardware side. But uh, as I said, I think uh, probably people would turn the focus on the software side. So that's why I think uh, Taiwan probably may not uh, be strong uh, coming, uh, looking ahead. Patrick, should we be looking at uh, things like the Taiwanese election? Is that is that a risk? Look, I think they're you know they're on the uh, on the radar, but I don't see them as a uh, you know as a partic- as a particularly strong risk. Um, you know, I think we perhaps uh, look a bit further uh, you know into, into the US uh, and, uh, around this time, well, the first Tuesday of November uh, next year as well. Uh, you know, we'll, it will be, we'll be interesting, uh, but I think markets are, are more concerned about the outlook for uh, for growth and the influence of. Uh, you know, of higher policy, uh, geopolitics, geopolitics uh, and how they're affected by, you know, by shifts in, in governments, I think, remain uh, you know, very important and, a, and a more a, a cautionary or a, a, a red flag to, uh, to markets, uh, as in, if anything. Uh, but I believe we have a, a decent amount of risk premium uh, already priced. Have we got to start pricing in next year the possibility of a, a Donald Trump victory in the presidential election and potentially the, the <laughs> well, chaos that could come with that? Well, well yes, because uh, he's the favourite. Mm. Uh, and I think people who ignore that uh, do so at their peril. But how on earth do you prepare for something like that? Uh. <laughs> well, well, perhaps you look at some of the geopolitics to be uh, to be not so fraught as they as they have been uh, as they have been recently. Uh, if we look back to the the previous the, the Trump uh, presidency and uh, geopolitics between uh, say China and the U.S., uh, they were certainly at a less uh, fraught level than they than they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so perhaps that's one way to uh, you know to, to look at it. It's a it's a bit, bit early to place your bets uh, as yet. Alex, is this something that you've got to start thinking about from an investment perspective? I think that probably may be good for the U.S. market because there are people who look back uh, on the on the four years of Trump presidency. Probably they think the U.S. market actually doing quite good, and probably we may raise the issue of tax cut again. So <laughs> I think that is uh, good for the U.S. market, but probably bad for other markets. Yeah, um, let's turn our attention then to Hong Kong. Uh, for nem- November so far, Hong Kong's Hang Seng is up two point six percent, but for the year to date down 11.2%. That makes it the worst performer of all the major equity indices globally. The Shanghai Composite up 0.7% in November, but down 1.6% year-to-date. And the MSC China Index um, has advanced nearly 4%. Uh, in November after three straight months of declines. Alex, this is typically, if you look back over the last few years, uh, these gains have tended to last, haven't they? Going Certainly going into January. Um, anyway, are you turning more optimistic at all? Actually, if you look at the consumer side of the Hong Kong market, they are making new lows last week, despite mm. the overall market rebound. It's just like... Uh, China Resources Brewery or, or Leaning, or they are they are making new lows right now. So I think some foreign exports actually are retreating from the market, but uh, people are picking up uh, exporters, and I think uh, Baidu's actually become the new favorite in the Hong Kong market right now. So that is helping uh, to to stabilize the market a little bit. But I think uh, overall Hong Kong will still underperform because right now. Um, we are talking about a wide list uh, of property developers. That means uh, probably uh, we may still see some um, risk transfer from the property market to the financial sector. And I think uh, uh, another round of equity financing or bond financing by those wide list companies actually means uh, uh, companies, cash-rich companies may need to contribute a little bit, I think, because I, uh, mm-hmm. I don't think uh, foreign investors would buy uh, into the property market-related uh, investment in China. And also, I think uh, rich persons in China probably may have uh, may not have too much interest. So we are, we are likely to see uh, some probably state-owned companies to contribute. So I think uh, we are seeing the risk uh, being transferred to other parts of the uh, markets. So I, I'm quite bearish in the long term because of this, I think. Because if, you, if, if, if they, 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 the, the consumer side actually is, is already weak if you look at the performance of those sectors. So expectation is very bearish right now. So I think uh, we are unlikely to see this strength to continue. Mm. 
And you're, you're not convinced by these property support measures, really, are you? Yeah, because uh, the fundamental problem is uh, the cash flow of those public companies. Uh, consul- uh, those um, people people know that you can always wait uh, to, 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 to have a better price, or you can delay your purchase because uh, you know that uh, there are plenty of supplies uh, uh, in, the, in, in the street, and, and then the prices probably are likely to, um, to, to, to go lower. The best case is a stay flat, so you can always delay your, your, your decision. So I think uh, the cash flow problems would remain. So that means that those companies would still be um, having very bad um, uh, cash flow situation. So I think that's why uh, uh, the property uh, situation is quite bad. But I, I, I think the government would still uh, likely to contain the prices and, and try to um, push up the transactions number, but I don't think that that would happen. That is the ideal scenario. I don't think that would happen. Patrick, are you convinced by these measures? There's been a lot of them recently, haven't they? Things like um, this white list of 50 developers, you know, having allowing banks to make unsecured loans uh, to the developers. Are you convinced that this is going to save the, the, the property sector turmoil from becoming a, a systematic crisis? No, I'm not convinced at all. Uh, I think this feels this feels and looks very much like papering over the cracks um, or papering over the chasms, uh, uh, you know, if, uh, if if you if you will. Um, I think there's uh, it's been incumbent on the authorities and um, policymakers to you know, provide some support. I think that's a good thing, uh, but I don't think this is a uh, I don't think this is a salve. Uh, which is going to, uh, you know, eventuate into a uh, into a recovery. I think this uh, slows the decline uh, at best. Mm, and it doesn't really solve the problem that there are still large losses that someone has got to take somewhere. Well, that's right. Eventually, they have to be taken. If you spread them out over a longer period, then it perhaps is is slightly less painful. Uh, I think is about the only. Uh, uh, consideration or, or uh, consolation at, at this point, but uh, in the very uh, you know, in the near and immediate term, uh, I think this is still a, a you know a big weight on the market. But this is this is sort of what they're proposing is in effect transferring the risk uh, to the financial sector and putting more pressure on banks who have already got large amounts of non-performing loans. Their profitability is pretty low at the moment. This is not going to help them, is it? No, it's not. As we mentioned earlier about uh, you know overall debt levels in, in economies more generally, this is. Uh, now, this is another, uh, you know, another, uh, you know, addition, ad- addition to that. We're we're spreading it to sectors which are, you know, not are, not are ill-equipped. You know, should be well equipped to handle it, but uh, but certainly are going to be uh, weighted down by by that. And uh, so it's it's spreading the load, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not getting rid of it. How how big, Alex, is, uh, is a, this a headwind for the financial sector on on the mainland? Would you just avoid uh, banks at the moment altogether, or? You no, know, I think uh, you just avoid those uh, banks, and I think uh, uh, overall, probably you just avoid the Chinese market because uh, the the risk actually is being spread out. As I've said, uh, probably uh, some companies need to contribute. Uh, they may not contribute into direct buying of uh, bonds and or equities, but they probably may buy some asset management products, which are indirectly uh, <laughs> getting their money into those uh, property related investments. So I think uh, people would not like that kind of use of cash. Uh, or of other sectors companies. So I think uh, that probably is the new risk we are facing in the China market later. I'm wondering anyway how this is going to work because in the past, you know, banks, bank managers have been punished for making um, sort of bad loans. They're absolutely terrified of, of getting it wrong. And now they're being pressurized to make unsecured loans to, to pretty well, you know, bankrupt property developers that are going to clearly you know, go, go wrong. It, it, you sort of wonder how, how on earth are you going to persuade the banks to do this? Yeah, uh, so they, 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 they actually uh, are guaranteeing they, they will not punish them. But I think uh, even though um, they, they have that kind of guarantee, probably uh, it's still um, uh, very um, risky to do so. So I think uh, uh, this is very difficult to execute. And Sorry, Patrick. No, look, I, I agree. I think that uh, you know, the banks at best will be tracking their heels uh, you know, over this because they don't want to get that exposure, uh, the exposure on their books. You know, notwithstanding, it's going to come at uh, you know at some point. And how big a problem is Yongji? Um, it's said last week it's severely uh, insolvent. Its debts um, are around about $60 billion, maybe as much as $65 billion, more than twice its assets. Um, in, in terms of the shadow banking system overall, I suppose uh, this is not huge, but nevertheless, this is quite big, isn't it? How, how big an issue is it? Uh, the market actually ignored the news in the meantime, but I think uh, that 
actually uh, was still the problem because many shadow bankings are based on property-related investment. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, that is the problem. This is just the surface um, uh, of, of the first case. Probably uh, we may see more like that coming. And, and the authorities are investigating Zhongji, but presumably, Patrick, as, as Alex says, this is really the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? There's others out there in similar positions. Oh, look, there must be. Uh, you know, absolutely. In, you know, in, in, severe, uh, in severe difficulty, then uh, <laughs> that's a pr some pretty strong language there. So, yeah, look, I imagine there's more. You know, shadow banking was one which was... Uh, Really was brought into you know was was brought into check uh, you know a couple of years ago, but now when uh, when things have been slowing, has been um, uh, perhaps less uh, you know less less concern or less oversight uh, you know of this of the sector because it has been providing a you know a useful uh, adjunct to uh, you know to, to to credit. But now when credit overall is becoming an issue uh, and indebtedness is becoming an issue, then. Uh, that these things that you know tend to mount on each other and uh, you know build on each other and uh, you know it really just feeds into that idea that uh, I think the outlook uh, you know, for the mainland economy is uh, and the mainland sector is uh, you know is very very uh, very very troubled. Okay, before we finish, I just want to ask you about one other market, Japan. The Nikkei 225 up 29% uh, this year, really put in a stonking performance, taken many people by surprise. But is this for real? We've had a lot of false storms in Japan over the, the last 30 years, haven't we? Is, is, are you convinced now by this rally? Uh, I'm still bullish, but I think uh, the curious problem would be the dollar, the, the yen. Because uh, right now we are having uh, inflation uh, in Japan. Actually, fundamentals, I think they are improving. But uh, the risk always is on the monetary policy. I think the, the BOJ probably would uh, try to um, be friendly to the market as long as possible. But uh, the point is uh, whether we would have uh, that inflation uh, coming back again. And because of wage inflation actually is quite severe in Japan right now. Um, so uh, this is the, the, the curious. But I think uh, overall Japanese companies are doing okay. If you look at um, uh, their operations, they are actually um, being more aggressively globally. Uh, actually, in Hong Kong, you can witness many uh, Japanese companies opening uh, retail operations in Hong Kong as a at the first stop to expand overseas. And then the anime uh, actually are, are getting more and more influence uh, through Netflix. So I think uh, we are having uh, improving fundamentals in Japan. But uh, the problem is um, the other risk is uh, the, the, the yen rates and, and the inflation in Japan. So um, I would be cautiously bullish uh, in Japan. Patrick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, 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 absolutely. It's been, uh, you know, a currency-adjusted basis. You know, it's very different uh, to how the market has performed. Uh, I believe the Bank of Japan is uh, is willing to accept this current policy mix, which is a, a weak currency and, and some inflation. Uh, I don't think that they will be uh, very, very quick to come in and, uh, you know, and rescind their, uh, their yield curve control policy any more than they have, yield curve control, rather, uh, any more than they have. So uh, I see the yen remaining weak, uh, the currency... Sorry, the yen remaining weak and the, uh, and the market continuing to perform. Okay, well, thank you very much for a great discussion there. Some very interesting thoughts um, on the markets. You heard Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett and Alex Wong, who is director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Now, there's been some interesting developments uh, in Taiwan. The two leading presidential hopefuls of Taiwan's opposition parties on Friday separately registered as candidates for the January 13th election. So uh, their, their plan to have this single opposition ticket has collapsed. How significant is that? It's very significant. Yeah, I mean, last week, every day last week, there were frantic meetings between the, these two leading opposition candidates, their staff, and Ma Yingzhou, you know, the former president mm -hmm. of, the, of the Kuomintang, and they were saying, if you two are on a single ticket, you will defeat the DPP candidate, and that is what is shown clearly by the opinion polls. And since their rhetoric, you know, their politics is, is quite similar in, in their criticism of the DTP and the fact that there needs to be an alternative, you know, in policy terms, it makes good sense. But the problem, of course, is who's going to be the president and who's going to be the vice president. And in the Taiwan system, the president has a lot of power and the vice president has very little power. So that's where it, it collapsed, because neither man was willing to be the vice presidential candidate because, uh, you, know, he, you know, he's been campaigning for a long time and this would be, a, for him, a very poor prize. So 
that's what happened. So the two of them registered separately. But the good news for the opposition was that uh, Terry Goh, who is the you know, founder of Foxconn and was earning about 9% of the votes, he dropped out. So that's a boost to the opposition because his votes will go to the two opposition candidates. Mm. And why did he now, drop out? He was out? asked uh, why he dropped out, and he said, I did it for the public of China. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know what he means, but I think he was persuaded that he had no chance of winning, and he too wants the DPP to lose. So I think he agreed finally to step down. Um, do you think he was uh, influenced by the pressure that's coming on Foxconn in China, these investigations that, that are going on at the moment? He said right at the beginning of his campaign, um, China wouldn't have any impact on him whatsoever. He was basically saying, bring it on. Well, they have brought it on. But has that changed his mind, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I, 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 think, I think now he's regretting having gone into politics because, as you know, he's the biggest single foreign investor in China in terms of uh, employment, and he's China's biggest exporter. Mm. So he has enormous interest there. So he was never going to have a chance of winning this election. So why go into it? And as you rightly said, those remarks he made on the first day, of course, they, they are sweet music to the voters of Taiwan, but they're very offensive to Beijing. So I think yeah, it, was, it was a kind of revenge. So I think now he can get back to, politi- to business, stay out of politics and try and get his business in China back on the rails. In the meantime, we've got this three-way race now. How, how close is it? Well, uh, after Gao drops out, you see, his votes go to the other two opposition candidates. So the last poll I saw from Formosa poll on November 20th to 22nd, has uh, Lai Qingde of the DP 31.5%, Hou Youyi of the Kuomintang 30.1%, and Ko Wenzhe uh, has 26.7%. So you see how close it is. Mm-hmm. And in Taiwan, uh, the, the person with the most votes wins. You don't have to get 50%. So, so um, Hou or Ko only have to get about 5 or 6% votes more, and they would win. Mm, so this is going to be quite interesting. Is there still the possibility that the two opposition parties could combine, even though the deadline is now gone for registering, or is it too late? No, it's too late. I mean, where there is room for cooperation is the, the legislative yuan is holding its vote on the same day. So the, the two parties could easily uh, cooperate in, in presenting uh, you know, a single candidate in areas where they have a good chance to defeat the DPP. So there is a chance that they cooperate there, and indeed they could get control of the legislative yuan. The DPP may not win it. Mm-hmm. But I think for, for these two candidates, no, I think the time has passed, um, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's left the Taiwan public with quite a bitter taste in the mouth because it's obviously they put their personal ambition ahead of anything else. Mm. And they've chosen, I think, some interesting running mates, haven't they? Mr. Mr. Lee's chosen uh, the, the sort of the de facto ambassador, is that the right word, to the U.S.? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, she's the standout candidate among the vice presidential candidates. I mean, she had an uh, uh, American mother, a Taiwanese father. He was the head of the main Presbyterian seminary of Taiwan, which is in Tainan. And the Presbyterian church has been since the 1870s the bedrock of sort of Taiwanese sentiment and identity. They were, they were fighting the Japanese. They were fighting the Kuomintang. And so she grew up speaking English and Taiwanese at home. And so she only learns Mandarin when she goes to school. So... She, her parents then moved to America, so she studied at Oberlin and Columbia Universities, both prestigious universities. And then she came back to Taiwan because she wanted to join politics there. And the last three years, she's been uh, Taiwan's de facto ambassador in Washington, mm. which is very good for Lai because it means she has an excellent uh, relationships in, in Washington. She knows politicians think tanks uh, and so on and of course the support of Washington will be critical for Taiwan in the years ahead so 
I think she was a very good choice by him. She adds a lot to the ticket. And, and she's known as the cat warrior, isn't she, I believe, because of her. She's sort of like uh, the almost the, the opposite to the wolf warriors on, on Beijing. So, uh, Well, yeah, of course, because, you know, <laughs> after Xi Jinping, Chinese diplomats have become much more aggressive. And so, you know, she's, she's in Washington. But remember, she has no official status. She cannot, um, you know, enter the State Department or she can't officially meet senior American officials. So she's always sort of... Uh, for fighting them in the shadows, and she she herself raises cats, so that's what that inspired her to come up with this term. And uh, she's likable, of course. Her English is very fluent, and she studied in two major U- U.S. universities, so she knows exactly the American political scene and the cultural scene, and, and you know how do you approach people. And, so I think she was a very good uh, ambassador there. Is she going to attract young people? Um, that's going to be a key part of the voting block, isn't it? Is, uh, is, is that a good, good move? Oh, yes, because it's the young Taiwanese who are the most dissatisfied on the economic front. Mm-hmm. Let's not talk about China or cross-strait relations, but, you know, uh, rents and house prices in Taiwan, especially in the big cities, are very high. Wages are low, especially if you have graduated from a not famous university and you've got a, a degree that's not in a, a sector that's very much in demand of labor. So the, many, many young people are unhappy at the, at the DPP for not tackling the high house prices, the high rents, rents and the inflation. So the DPP has got to work hard to get those people to vote for it. So she's younger and, uh, you know, she's she's good looking and she's a lady also. So, yeah, I think it will certainly help them get more young and uh, female votes. And, and are these issues that you mentioned, are they high in the considerations of Taiwanese people? I presume that, you know, they're not just thinking about China and relations with China. There are some domestic issues as well. Are, are they polling as, as big issues? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, China has been threatening Taiwan since 1949. I mean, during my last visit in, in Taiwan, I asked people about the possibility of a war. And many of them just shrugged it off. They said, well, we're used, we're, we're living this, you know, since 1949, these threats and now these military exercises and naval exercises and so forth, we're used to it. So to some extent, that's discounted. So the issues then are uh, your daily life, the cost of living, your job opportunities, um, uh, the, the the wages you receive, how much it's worth. So, yeah, these economic issues are, are very important. And there the, the opposition uh, can do well mm. because the DPP has been in power for eight years. And this is like in most democratic countries, you know, the, the party in power um, changes after eight years. That's normal. So if if I were the, the KMT, I would certainly go hard on these issues. Mm. And how is China going to react to all of this? I presume they're, they're not going to want to see the DPP win and certainly not with the Cat Warrior on the ticket either. No, they've made that very clear. They don't want it. They say they are uh, independentists. And if Ch- Taiwan declares independence, there'll be war. So they definitely want to help. They want the KMT guy to win. Because the Mr. Koenjer, he's he's former mayor of Taipei, former doctor. You know, he's a more moderate candidate. He's not so clear where he stands on the China issue. But the KMT is the most China-friendly of the three parties. So Beijing definitely wants the KMT to win. But the question is, how do you help um, uh, the KMT win? Because you know, the Taiwan public now is, is quite hostile to Beijing and they see it as militaristic and threatening them. And and so, you know, very strong statements by Beijing could be counterproductive to, to, to Kuomintang. So I think what they'll try to say is um, if Kuomintang wins, relations with China will greatly improve. Uh, trade relations can improve. There can be negotiations between the two sides. They can discuss. There are lots of common issues they need to talk about. Uh, the business community, of course, very much wants better relations uh, with, with Beijing. So 
I think if if Beijing can be softly, softly, they can certainly help the, the Guangdong candidate. If the DPP does win, just looking at what they're saying and who they've chosen as, as the running mates, uh, it tends to suggest that the focus is going to be on US relations, isn't it? Strengthening Taiwan-US uh, relations. What is that going to do to China-US relations, which sort of have improved a bit, haven't they, since the, uh, the APEC summit? Well, um, at the APEC summit... You know, uh, Mr. Xi Jinping and Biden discussed many issues, but the one in which the difference was greatest and the tempers were hottest was over Taiwan. So, yes, you're quite right. If DPP wins, they will say we must improve relations with the USA, with the EU, with Japan, you know, all the other countries that would help to protect us against a possible Chinese invasion or a blockade. And, um, of course, the vice president will be very useful in this. But, of course, that will make China even more angry. So uh, it's, uh, it's a mixed blessing. But, but we have to say that Tsai Ing-wen was in power for eight years, uh, and she knew exactly where the red lines were with China. She never crossed them. And Lai Qingdao will be the same. If he's the president, he's, he's, I mean, he was quite an independence-minded person, you know, growing up and as a young man. But now he's, he knows what the score is. So uh, the DPP will certainly not declare independence, and that would be the, the spark of the war. So whilst Beijing doesn't like him, um, he's not going to declare independence. So without that declaration, it becomes difficult for China to embark on a war or, or a blockade. Mm. And I presume at the moment, President Xi Jinping needs better relationships with the US anyway. He's got a lot of domestic problems, hasn't he? The economy uh, is not great. He's got a crisis in the property sector. Um, he doesn't need to have friction with the US at the moment. No, and um, you're right. Why did he go there? He went there because things were, were, were going badly at home. He needs some help from the outside. And I think the Ukraine war is a very important factor in this too. I think Remember, Putin went to the Beijing Winter Olympics. Mm. We don't know exactly what he said to see, but my guess is that he told him, we're planning some military operation in Ukraine. It'll all be over in a week or two. You know, it's nothing to worry about. And look what's happened. Um, what's 200,000 Russians are dead. The whole Western world is solidly behind Ukraine providing we weapons. It's a nightmare for for Russia, but also for China. So I think the better Ukraine does militarily against Russia, the better it is for Taiwan, because it will make seem more and more cautious about uh, a military or a blockade, because he, once you start that, you don't know the outcome, and you know that, that the US, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and so on will support Taiwan. So... Mm. We, do, we don't know where that will go. And I think character is also important. I mean, Putin is, is clearly crazy now. I mean, he's like Adolf Hitler. He's lost all reason. Mm. But Xi is not. Xi is he's very clear he wants reunification of Taiwan. That's very clear. But, you know, he's a much more cautious uh, person. He still <laughs> meets a lot of his advisors. I mean, Putin rarely meets advisors now. So, so uh, I, I, yeah, I, I don't see any military attack in the short term. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Very interesting analysis there. Always good to talk to you. That's China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Take a look at Peter Lewis, moneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft, Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.